0: Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the RacingNews365.com Formula One podcast. My name is Michael Butterworth and I'm joined as ever by Dieter Renken, Editorial Director of Racing News 365 Dieter, as ever, welcome to the show and uh, unusually today, happy birthday. Uh, I know that the nature of your job takes you uh, all over to various far-flung corners of the globe and uh, I believe this is the 14th different venue that you've
1: celebrated your birthday at. Well, 14th different country, Michael, yes. Um, Not all of them are Formula One, but, you know, in a previous life, um, I did a fair amount of global travel as well. I lived in various countries. So, uh, yes, it's now the 14th different country that I've celebrated a birthday in. Um, And, you know, I turned 69 today. So uh, approximately 20% of my birthdays have been away from home.
0: Well, looking at it from uh, on telly, it certainly looked as if Austin was a great place to celebrate a birthday. And uh, as we've seen at so many races this year, grandstands absolutely packed to the rafters. And uh, we we, we were treated to a pretty intriguing race. I've got to say, I was a bit worried um, at the start. I thought we were going to be robbed of the only real interest in the race when uh, Verstappen overtook Carlos Sainz at turn one. And then Sainz was tipped into that spin uh, by George Russell. And then obviously he incurred damage in that from which uh, he unfortunately had to retire and I I, along with many others I think assumed that we were just going to see Verstappen drive off into the distance as he has done at so many races this year Uh, but he had to work hard for it he had a slow second pit stop that dropped him behind Lewis Hamilton and Charles Leclerc he had to pass both of them he passed uh, Hamilton for the lead with five laps to go to score his 13th win of the season that equals the record for the number of wins by a single driver in a single Grand Prix season
1: How did you enjoy the U.S. Grand Prix, Dieter? Um, I thought it was a cracker race. I I really did. Um, However, let's just have a look at it. uh, a, a sort of take a helicopter a view or perspective of it. Um, yes, you're right that, you know, I, I happen to have been fortunate because it was my birthday, Bobby Epstein, the, uh, the chairman of COTA and to his private suite overlooking turn two. So I could see the cars come up the hill through turn one, saw the shunt and then down sweeping past us. And then I picked them up again behind that. Uh, I, yeah, I agree absolutely and totally that when, um, you know, Carlos and, and uh, George made uh, contact, I've sort of said to myself, right, this is it. Um, However, if we then have a look at how the race developed and evolved, um, there were two safety car periods, both of which actually sort of closed up the field. And then of course there was that issue with the air gun that that max suffered and uh so yes you're quite correct you had to work for it but frankly there was never any doubt whatsoever that max had the better race race car today as opposed to qualifying car yesterday um you know yesterday was of course the uh the sad death of uh, dietrich matterschitz the founder of red bull as we know it uh, got got hold of a a tire restaurant uh, which was used by truck drivers to stay awake in the in the um, in the Asian area, he turned it into a global energy drink product, uh, billions and billions of cans sold annually, and he's used the profits. Uh, as far as we're concerned, of course, very very constructively, owns two Formula One teams, owns the um, the the what used to be the A1 circuit now the Red Bull Ring, but of course his death yesterday. I did leave a dark cloud hanging over Red Bull Racing, understandably so. Max was very emotional yesterday. Christian Horner, I could see, was fighting back tears. I believe it. there had been some tears before he called the media in again understandably so so in real terms the red bull team was really up against it today not only did they uh, suffer the death of their founder but also you know um twice max lost his advantage through safety cars plus there was a slow stop so i think all in an absolutely cracking performance from red bull racing mm-hmm
0: and let's stay with um, Dietrich Mateschitz now we we'd known for a while that he was uh, in poor health so but perhaps it's not totally unexpected but what does his passing mean for Red Bull you, you talked about uh, how he's used the profits of selling the energy drink to uh, to, to buy the team they also own of course Alpha Tauri they own the uh, the Red Bull ring he also owns a string of other uh, sports teams and extreme sports and soccer and uh, and various other things but uh, What does his death mean for Red Bull Racing? Because he was the driving force between Red Bull, uh, for Red Bull coming into Formula One. First of all, in the 90s as a sponsor with Sauber and then with Arrows, and then buying the ailing Jaguar team at the end of 2004, turning it into Red Bull Racing, turning it into the uh, multiple race and championship winning outfit that we now know. It's not just Red Bull Racing, we've got Red Bull powertrains, we've got Red Bull Technologies. So with Dietrich Mateschitz no longer with us, where where do Red Bull go from here? What does that mean for the future of the team and, and its wider affiliates?
1: Before I address that, Michael, um, allow me to add that he, of course, also bought Minardi, which he then turned into first uh, Toro Rosso and then AlphaTauri. Uh, there is also another company called Red Bull Advanced Technologies, which is producing the RB17 hypercar. So all in, there's a very, very broad palette. Uh, but apart from that, his involvement in motorsport, but global motorsport, goes beyond Formula One, way beyond that. For example um on sunday so uh, although i'm talking to you on sunday evening from texas now of course in parts of europe and and, and asia it's already monday so on sunday um in europe uh, Nasser Al-Hatia, the um, the cross-country driver, drives for the Teotihuacan Gazoo team. Again, he is sponsored by Red Bull, won the, uh, the FIA cross-country world championship. It goes way beyond that. You know, they're in rally, they're in, in, in MotoGP, uh, cross-country, you name it. If it's got wheels, it's probably somewhere along the line had a Red Bull sticker on it. And then as you say, there's ice hockey, there's football, there was the uh, the space drum. There were all sorts of things that he does, music concerts. I mean, he really had a look at his profits and he said, how can I plow them back and give people pleasure? And that's really what he did, and he did it very, very, very well. To, to answer your question, Michael, about what does it mean for Red Bull, I did, in fact, broach the subject in January when, when I was visiting the um, the Red Bull factory in Milton Keynes in the UK, and I said to Christian, you know, what happens when Dietrich Mateschitz goes? At that stage, there was no talk about um, about illness. But, of course, you know, when somebody is, is beyond 70 the way that he was, um, one has to look at these these things pragmatically. And I said, you know, what happens? And he said, don't you worry about it. It's all been sorted. I spoke to such an Austrian gentleman who knows Dietrich Mateschitz very, very well. And I said to him, uh, you know, what's going to happen? And he gave me the same sort of answer. He said, I asked Dietrich and he said, don't you worry, everything is tied up very neatly and very tightly. Um, I must add, this is something that one would expect from a man like Dietrich Mateschitz uh my prognosis is that it will be some form of trust or foundation very similar to for example the ikea or ikea depending on where you live how you pronounce it uh the chain of furniture uh, flat pack furniture shops again the the founding family realized very early on that the the family members the second and third generation would be unable to to move the business forward and so they created a foundation and i can foresee that Dietrich Mateschitz would have done that in other words the foundation will then appoint a CEO a marketing director etc to run the business and then the profits can then go however Dietrich Mateschitz has determined they should go whether to a son whether to charities to whatever but I, I'm sure that his death his passing sad as it is will not affect the team in any material way whatsoever
0: Well, staying with Red Bull now, um, the fact that Mataschitz passed away on Saturday means that any conversations that are uh, being had at the moment uh, between Red Bull and between the FIA around uh, the the, uh, alleged cost cap breach uh, have been put on hold. We're expecting uh, to see that talks might pick pick back up uh, next week uh, when we're leading up to the Mexico Grand Prix. Uh, I know you've been keeping your ear very close to the ground on this one, Dieter, uh, with regards uh, Red Bull's alleged breach of the cost cap. W- what are you hearing and where are we at at the moment?
1: Um, Michael, just for the avoidance of doubt and to clarify, you say next week the Mexican Grand Prix. Of course it is because I'm Sunday, but in real terms it is this week. In other words, the next couple of days, I believe, we'll start seeing talks resume about this. Um I have spoken to various parties, both within um uh, the FIA. Uh, they of course are fairly lip, but every now and then um one can read between the lines as to where it is. Uh one hopes that one reads them correctly and accurately. Uh, you talk to team people, again they being sort of tight lipped, but again one hopes that one is reading um their answers correctly. And again, what, what I've been able to understand from this is that, yes, there is an overspend, however, that it is unexplainable overspend and that now what it is is persuading the FIA that there hasn't really been a major performance advantage obtained from this. Um, And I think the way that it will go forward is that they will look at it and say, good, the the spend was, for example, there's an area called RDEC, which is a UK um, research and development uh, subsidy tax deduction type system, where if you do research and development and engineering um, activities, you can apply for tax breaks now i believe that what red bull had done here has not applied correctly for certain of these however they included them in there now i know that most of the uk teams have got summer activities um in fact um, our deck is 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 highlighted uh, very clearly in the mercedes uh returns so What I can foresee happening is that Red Bull are ultimately going to turn around and say, look, it was these four or five areas. These are the amounts of money. They were not performance enhancing areas. One of them was to do, it's a combination of gardening leave, sick leave and severance pay, I believe, for for two employees. And um, I believe that. All that Red Bull had done in this case is logged the amounts incorrectly or have them according to the FIA structures. So I think that what will probably happen is that ultimately people are gonna turn around and say, yeah, the regulations are new, they're still evolving. There are complexities. Yes, there are some gray areas. Uh, So what we will do is we will allow you to keep these but ensure that next time you allocate these costs correctly. But because you are now late with your submission, there'll be a procedural breach against you. And it's up to you to actually accept that and pay the fine or take whatever the penalty is. Alternatively, they can take it further. I believe that they would accept it if it's a procedural breach, because a procedural breach is then not an admission of actually cheating. It's an admi- admission of administrative processes that weren't adhered to. And I think that that's probably the, um, the agreement that will be reached with the FIA towards the end of this week or very, very early the following week, in other words, a day or two after the Mexican Grand Prix.
0: So that would just be a, a, a fine then or a, a reduction in the amount of budget cap that they can use for next year? There's no
1: suggestion of uh, any reduced uh, wind tunnel time or anything like that? Um, I believe that at the moment the um, uh, the proposed penalty is that there will be a fine. There will be a reduction in, in wind tunnel time. However, that presupposes that Red Bull do actually admit to some form of overspend breach. And that I believe they're unlikely to do because they believe that they are able to explain these amounts. And if they're able to explain the amounts, they're saying we should not then be penalized. Uh, And of course, the outcome, the odd argument that the sporting and technical regulations took 70 years to clarify. In this case, the sport, the financial regulations are literally in their first test season. And therefore, it's to be expected that there'll be some problems. But if
0: they are in their first season, as you say, and if Red Bull don't receive any significant punishment for this, and there's been a lot of anger towards Red Bull from some of the other teams and team principals and drivers, if Red Bull is is seen by other teams to be basically getting away with having breached the cost cap, does that not uh, render the, the cost cap ineffective in the first place?
1: Um, let's just sort of um, uh, address the various points that you bring up. Yes, some of the teams have been very, very vocal in their, in their criticism of Red Bull. I mean, Zach Brown wrote a letter to the FIA. Uh, this letter was leaked by parties unknown, but a couple of us in the media got hold of copies of this letter. Um, and, you know, the, the, the issue is that th- a lot of this is politicking. Everybody looks for some advantage in Formula One drivers do it going into a corner the engineers do it when they interpret the regulations the accountants do it when they look at the financial regulations the team bosses do it everybody is always looking for an angle and you know yes ferrari mercedes a couple of others mclaren were were pretty vocal in their criticism of of red bull but uh, this is sort of par for the course for formula one you know formula one effectively uh runs on three things one is petrol one is Pirelli tires and the other one is rumors and you know this again is this sort of rumor thing that there's this, this cheating etc and that's become this big controversy let's just treat it very very calmly let's wait for the dust to settle and let's see what comes out of it well
0: we've spoken about red bull a lot on this podcast we've spoken about ferrari a lot we've spoken about mercedes uh, one team that we haven't spoken a lot about uh, over the course of this year is Aston Martin. And uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about Aston Martin and about Lance Stroll and Sebastian Vettel because uh, they had a, a very, very solid weekend. Uh, early on in the race, we had Lance Stroll lying third and Sebastian Vettel lying fifth. Uh, but it, it could have been so much more. Lance Stroll retired from the race uh, in, uh, after a very... Uh, could have been very frightening accident actually with uh, Fernando Alonso that I'll, I'll come on to talk about in just a second. Sebastian Vettel very had a scary. slow pit stop, uh, which dropped him to eighth. He probably without that probably would have finished about sixth. Um, but I think can Aston Martin feel encouraged with the pace that they've had because a few weeks ago they were ninth in the constructors' championship. They are now seventh in the standings. They're just three points uh behind alfa romeo they've scored points in seven of the last eight races for context alfa romeo have only scored one point in the last ten so of all the five teams in the bottom half of the constructor standings aston martin seem to be very much with the, the 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 wind in their sails of course seventh and sixth in the constructors is not where they would want to be given the amount of investment that uh, lawrence Stroll has put into the team but uh, can you see brighter days ahead for Aston Martin, given what we've seen in in recent
1: races? Um, yes. Well, i mean, You know, you you make a very good point that they were ninth and then now seventh, and they're right behind um, uh, Sauber or, or Alfa Romeo as they as they they are entered. Um, I think the big thing here, um, uh, Michael, is very very simply the fact that their car seems to be. Uh, affected by specific circuits. They seem to be pretty quick, very comfortable on certain circuits, and then when they get to the next one, they seem to be losing a bit of ground, etc. So I think it's very difficult, and a lot of teams are going through this, where it's become very circuit-specific. They perform fantastically at one circuit. They believe that they found this the silver bullet and they get the next one and they're down in the dumps again this is happening to mercedes it's happened to ferrari it's happened to mclaren to alpine you name it all over the place so can they feel confident of finishing seventh or sixth no they can't however it must be very very encouraging for them that they're able to do this Talking about the accident, that was really scary, really, really scary. And, you know, I was talking to Fernando Alonso afterwards and he said, well, you know, people look at, look at it and they say, well, Stroll moved across the left at 300 kilometers an hour or something. Fernando was very calm and measured when he said, look, I saw this thing in slow motion. And when you look at it, he's actually sort of moving ahead of me uh, to, to the left. Um, But at 300 kilometers an hour, it just happened so, so quickly. And this was really what it was. In fact, Fernando very generously said that he thought that this was more a racing accident than a driver incident, which I thought was very generous of him. But it does tend to prove that, you know, at those sort of speeds, things happen very, very quickly.
0: Yeah. And uh, Lance Stroll was actually it's interesting that Alonso said that because Stroll was actually given a three place grid penalty. Uh, for the next race in Mexico, for his part in the, in that collision, did you think that was justified?
1: Um, well, I think that once one has looked at all the angles, one has looked at the slow mos one has heard both drivers' stories. Once you've done that, I think that it's um, that you know what only then can one get the, the you know the whole picture i think the other thing is you know we're saying that fernando was rather generous let's not forget that next year he's coming into that team which is owned by by Lon stroll's father so and you know fernando's a, a pretty canny operator so you know the last thing he's going to do is slam um Lance Stroll, knowing that his paymaster next year is going to be Lawrence Stroll. So we've got to see Fernando's comments against that background. But I do take his point that at 300 kilometers an hour, things happen very, very, very quickly. And it's
0: worth noting as well, I mean, when I watched that accident on on TV and I saw Alonso riding up over the rear wheels of Stroll and, you know, it was shades of that crash that we saw in Valencia all those years ago between Mark Webber and Heike Kovalainen uh, when he went up in the air and and came down and upside down at about 200 miles an hour very very frightening stuff and of course Weber unbelievably emerged unscathed from that but incredibly uh, not only was alonso unscathed he actually managed to 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 get back to the pits fit a new nose cone, and then finished seventh despite the damage that uh, undoubtedly had been uh, his alpine had incurred and you know we, we sometimes see drives like this that get a bit ignored because they're not happening at the front of the field but i thought to, to, to be involved in that accident, to have the damage that he had to his Alpine, to then have to make a pit stop and be at the back of the field and then finished 7th, that's got to be up there, even by Alonso's standards, as one of his best-ever drives.
1: Uh, yes, absolutely. But while we've been on air, Michael, by the way, Fernando has lost that 7th place. He's now down to 15th place. Haas uh, had lodged a protest, which was upheld. Um, and basically, uh, Fernando got a 30-second time penalty for continuing to race with a car that was damaged. And uh, so he's now been dropped out of the points. And uh, and in fact, ironically, his teammate Esteban Ocon has moved up into 10th place. You know, basically, 8th, ninth, and 10th, and 11th had all sort of moved up a place. So Esteban Ocon gets one point, um, but the... A protest had been filed and lodged by the Haas team. Uh, they alleged that in the, this year alone, three times they received orange and black flags, which means stop immediately, go to your, get your pit, let your technicians look at the car to make sure that it's safe. And of course, that's cost Kevin Magnussen a lot of sp- uh, places, and therefore a lot of points, which has dropped Haas down the order. So Gunther Steiner decided to, um, uh, to protest uh, both Checo Perez, who lost an end plate and the Alpine of Fernando Alonso. The uh, Perez uh, protest was um, not allowed. It was basically uh, overruled and that was at the end of it. However, the Alonso one was upheld. And uh, the net effect is that uh, everybody's moved up uh, through to 7th, 8th, ninth, and 10th places. And uh, so that's it. But, yes, uh, Fernando was very, very brave driving that car. I did speak to him afterwards, and he said, oh, well, yeah, he felt that there was something a bit funny, but nothing really to worry about. He thought the team had looked over the car and given it the all clear. But, of course, one can never see what's going on underneath. One can't see whether certain parts are cracked or whatever. And uh, the net effect is, of course, that the drive was effectively in vain because um, he's got no points out of it.
0: Yeah, it's not often we deal with breaking news on the podcast, but there we go. Um, It's interesting that uh, Alonso was given that 30-second penalty and Perez wasn't. Now, to the naked eye, looking at it from the outside, you couldn't see anything immediately wrong with Alonso's car. Obviously, we don't know what we couldn't see underneath. We don't know what may have been wrong with his car. But Perez, very notably, had one of the uh, the sides of his front wing was flapping about. Uh, Shades of what we'd seen Kevin Magnussen be uh, penalised for earlier in the season. I, I wonder if that if that flap on his, his front wing had stayed attached and just flapping about maybe he would have been called in but of course then it detached itself uh and so then he just carried on the rest of the race without it but it detached itself at pretty high speed and it didn't hit anybody or anything but isn't that the reason why we've got this this penalty system in place because if it had made contact with someone and you know it, it calls to mind uh, all those years ago where uh, felipe massa was hit by a spring that came off rubens Barrichello's car At high speed, that could cause severe damage to to somebody or to something.
1: Absolutely. But again, you know, we're talking about the professionalism of the Red Bull team. The way they work under pressure uh what the stewards found is that red bull had actually taken photographs of the car immediately analyzed them sent them to uh, the fia said look this is a situation that's what the front wing looks like that's how it's held on this is this this is that etc and in fact the, the stewards' um, verdict actually refers and references those photographs and I think this is the, you know, the, the, the sort of reason why Red Bull is currently at the top of its game. They cover every single angle, every single base. They look at it and they close whatever loophole there may be.
0: Well, let's look ahead a little bit to next year now. Uh, before this race weekend, there were only two drives for next year still open, and one of them has now been filled. Williams confirmed that uh, the Formula 2 driver, Logan Sargent, will be driving for them in 2023. If he gets the super license points, we're widely expecting that uh, that he will do, unless he has a, a very, very bad weekend at the last round of the F2 uh, championship in Abu Dhabi. Uh, he would be the first American driver in Formula One since Alex Rossi in 2015. Now, we've got three races, of course, in the U.S. next year. So uh, Formula One must be very, very happy that we're going to get an American driver at them.
1: Assuming, of course, he gets the super licenses, yes, absolutely. I mean, they've tried to get uh, Colton Herter in there. They've tried various other American drivers. It's never quite gelled, whereas here it looks as though you know Logan Sargent is coming in. He's, he's certainly proven to be more than capable in um, F3, F2. Um, so although we view him as an American, in real terms, he's actually almost a European because he spent the last three or four years racing in Europe. Um, and, of course, he's done that in Formula 3, Formula 2. He's a race winner in Formula 2, very, very capable guy. I believe he comes from a fairly solid, wealthy family background. That, of course, is something that that um, Williams will need because they will be losing the uh, stipend from the Latifi family. So all in, I think, and I certainly hope that Logan Sargent does qualify for super license points, and I look forward to seeing you on the grid next year. I think it's fantastic news for Formula One. I think it's fantastic news for Formula One in America. And I think, above all, I think it's fantastic news for Logan Sargent himself.
0: Are Williams placing themselves in a bit of an awkward situation here? Because supposing Sargent doesn't get the super license points, then he's not going to be able to race next year. And then Williams are going to have to hire somebody else. And everyone knows that that driver is not going to be first choice. And is this is a bit of a potentially embarrassing situation that they're putting themselves
1: through. I think that you'll find that Williams have looked at the risk and set themselves a sort of 0.1% of a chance that uh, Logan won't qualify, and 99.9% chance that he will. Let's make the announcement at COTA, American home soil, etc. But equally, if he doesn't qualify for um, a super license, they will be using him for testing next year. So, you know, the announcement of Logan Sargent is valid either way. Uh, what will then happen, of course, is they'll have to decide who they get for the second seat if he does not qualify. At the moment, there are basically two candidates for the single remaining open seat there is, which is um, at Haas. Um, unless, of course, uh, um, a sergeant doesn't get a super license. So the only available seat as we speak right now is at Haas. Um, and I think the two guys going for that are Mick Schumacher and Nicker Holtenberg. And whoever doesn't get it is then sort of in the in pole position for the Williams seat if Logan Sargent doesn't qualify. So there, there's no big drama here. I think both Nico and, and Mick are, are very capable and they'll slot them very easily.
0: Well, we're nearly out of time now, but uh, of course we're, uh, we're we've got a, a Grand Prix coming up next weekend. We're moving south to Mexico City. It's a venue that Max Verstappen absolutely loves. He's won there three times before. If he wins again uh, next time, he will break the record for the number of Grand Prix wins in a single season. What are you expecting to see in Mexico, Dieter?
1: Well, probably I think it's going to be a a Red Bull um, uh, show. I, I, however, do hope that it's actually uh, Checo Perez. You know, local boy does good. I think it would be great for Checo to win in Mexico. Um, I, in fact, I, I can just imagine the, the Fiesta uh, starting the minute he crosses the line. So that that would be great for that. Although, you know, Max does deserve it. But just getting back to breaking the record, etc., you know, the, I, I think that we just as a sport have too much focus on breaking records. Um, you know, the, the record was, I believe, set by Nigel Mansell back in 1992, so almost 30 years ago, when there were 15 or 16 races. At that point, winning 13 or 14 races was an enormous achievement, enormous. We look back in '88 when, when McLaren won 15 out of 16 um, with the, um, with, with the Etienne Senna and Alain Prost. Again, uh, you know, a stellar performance now if max um breaks the record it's going to be 13 or 14 possibly he can even do 15 but out of 24 races and of course you know 15 out of 24 is effectively sort of three quarters whereas nigel mansell won basically 90 percent of the races for red bull surely now the priority max verstappen has won the driver's
0: championship red bull have won the constructors championship Surely now the, the priority for them is to ensure that Checo finishes second in the driver's championship. Correct.
1: Absolutely. And the best way of ensuring that is for him to win in Mexico.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, I'm, I'm sure he would love that. And I'm sure the, uh, the Mexican fans would go absolutely berserk if we, uh, if we had a home winner at Mexico. But, Peter, uh, thank you very much for your insight as ever. And we'll be looking forward to hearing from you
1: after the race in Mexico. been a great podcast. Thanks for leading it so, so wonderfully. Thank you, Michael.
0: And if you'd like to hear more of Dieter's insights, you can follow him on Twitter at RacingLines. And don't miss Dieter's diaries from F1 Race Weekends, which are published regularly on the RacingNews365.com website. That's it for this edition of the podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll be back after the Mexico City Grand Prix.